Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 6th. It's uh, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. Uh, it's the fourth interview I've done today. I'm thriving on overload. Uh, things seem to be speeding up on so many fronts. We did a show with my old friend Azim Azar um, recently on technology and what he calls the exponential gap. That's the subject of his new book which he calls the exponential age, how accelerating technology is transforming business, politics, and society. It's all about speed. Um, and of course, in many ways, this is just the next chapter uh, in Alvin Turfler's classic book, Future Shot, which he wrote in 18, uh, not in 18, in 1970, about how everything just continues to speed up in this increasingly fast world of information. How are we supposed to behave? Uh, for some of my guests, discomfort is a good thing. Sterling Hawkins, a futurist, was on the show uh, last week, suggesting in his new book, uh, Hunting Discomfort, that we actually need to live with discomfort. Uh, my guest today has a slightly different take. His book is called Thriving on Overload, the Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information. He is the self-styled uh, futurist Ross Dawson, normally based in uh, Australia, uh, but today in New York uh, celebrating the launch of the book. Congratulations, Ross, on the new book. Thank you, Andrew. So you, you use this word exponential as well. What do you mean by it, Ross? Well, if we simply look at the amount of information produced, uh, there has been a pretty fair degree of exponentiality to it. Uh, a lot of that is information production feeding on itself. And, but one of the things that I would look to the most, you know, I think one of the most interesting is the academic research, where Archive as an open access journal, as if, it's, if you look at the chart of the production of open source information over the last uh, decades that has uh, exponential curve to it. And this is a factor where it's not just the amount of information, but actually it's the compression of the time. So it used to take a long time for uh, from a production, you know, from research to be done, to going through a peer review process, to uh, people being able to see it and then build on that research. Now it's instantaneous. So we're getting not only this increasing exponentiality of production of information, but also the speed of that means that the, we can learn from and uh, build on and uh, continue to uh, grow our knowledge and expertise even faster over time. For those people uh, watching, visualizing the exponential is a rather phallic uh, process. Everything seems to go up. Uh, definitions of the exp exponential function is a uh, it suggests that um, uh, an increase becoming more and more rapid. Uh, Russ, is this just going to go on and on in the 21st century? Do you expect the exponential grow, curve to just keep on going up? Can uh, is it like? Isn't it like Moore's law? Won't it actually hit a wall eventually? 
I think so. I, I think that the production of information is moving at such a pace. I mean, is that it's going to become more linear in its growth. But the, the point is that it's actually a long time ago that the information production far exceeded human capacity. So I wrote an article 25 years ago called Information Overload, Problem or Opportunity. And so we have, you know, whatever, some thousands fold more information than we did at the time. But this is a environment where we have limited cognitive capabilities and unlimited information. So whether that, the, whatever the factor, you know, whether it's a hundred times or a thousand times or a million times more information than humans can deal with, it still comes back to that same issue. Limited cognitive capabilities, essentially infinite information from the perspective of the human brain. Ross, are you preaching a certain sort of agency when you give your keynote talks on your website? Uh, there's a big, um, a big slide saying creating your future. Is that what you're promising on thriving on overload, the five powers for success? Are you suggesting that we can all create our future in this exponential age? Well, what I, well, pulling back to, I suppose, the theme of the book, we can absolutely have choice on the way in which we approach a world of unlimited information. And I believe that is a critical success factor. Almost all roles, almost all value creation comes essentially from taking a world of information and being able to understand it better, make better decisions, see opportunities. So this is the fundamental capability. And I believe that we have a choice around how it is we deal with information and whether we treat it as something which is overwhelming or something which is an abundant resource which we can use at choice to guide our behaviors and our decisions and our, you know, what we do in our business or how it is we choose to try to make a better world for ourselves and our companies and hopefully uh, all of humanity. Ross, you use this word overload. For most people, overload means too much, but you're suggesting that we can actually thrive on it. So for you, overload is the reality. That's not going to change. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we exist in a world of excessive information, you know, super abundant, whatever words you want to use, there is, we are overloaded in the amount that we have. But I think that there is a mindset shift where we can treat this as abundance. We can say, well, from instead of treating it as overwhelming or overload, we can say, I can pick and choose what it is that is most useful to me. And that there are certain skills and capabilities to be able to filter those out, to be able to uh, avoid taking in or accessing too much information which has low or negative value and to uncover that which has positive value. So we can thrive, we can prosper, we can do as well as anyone else, as any human can in this world. But, uh, you know, and that is in a context where, yeah, I think it's, it's fair to describe the amount of information we get as, uh, as overload. You said as any human can make in this context, you're an interesting blog uh talking about how do we know when ai becomes conscious and deserve rights of course raises the issue of blade runner uh based on uh philip dick's great uh, short story to android's great uh, dream of electric sheep with uh the hero of the the book or of the movie at least the replicants uh bionic well i'm not sure if they're the, the hero probably they're the villain or the both uh, fictional by an engineered humanoids. Um, at what point 
do you think do machines themselves take over from us? Because if 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 we are indeed living in this endlessly exponential age, at a certain point, we're going to rely more and more on machines to um, to to manage our information to all this data that's being thrown at us, aren't we, Ross? I, I am a humanist, and I still believe that humans have capabilities that machines will not be able to exceed for the foreseeable future. And so machines have specific capabilities where they can exceed humans. Humans have other capabilities where they will continue to exceed human machines. And and I and the, one of the most fundamental ones, and sort of the, the fifth power in those five powers in the book is, is synthesis. The ability to take disparate, non-organized information from an extraordinary variety of contexts to be able to create meaning and understanding from that. So all machine learning models are by definition domain bounded, where you've got a training data and a set of data, which is within fixed parameters. So if we think about, you know, some definitions of artificial general intelligence are to be able to go into somebody's house and uh, make a cup of coffee. Well, uh, obviously, we, we, humans can do that pretty well, and we can do a whole lot more as well. So this is around how do we find AI with their ability to analyze information, pick up emergent patterns, uh, some in some instances make superior predictions, and combine and integrate that with human capabilities. And that is, I believe, the whole next phase of business and society is having human AI complementary systems, organizations, skill sets, that this is the future. Interesting that you bring up the issue of meaning. We had a conversation about AI with the video essayist Evan Kushak. He's very popular on YouTube. He has a new book out, Escape into Meaning, Essays on Superman, Public Benches, and Other Obsessions. Are you suggesting that replicants aren't able to deal with the concept of meaning? They aren't able to produce things of meaning? What is... What is the thing that distinguishes us from replicants in terms of meaning? So this comes back to you know the, the blog post you pointed to earlier in in, this, in looking at uh, is AI conscious and being able to determine that. So that's one of the choices which we you know, issues we have is where machines may protest vehemently that they are conscious and that they have feelings and that they don't want to be turned off but we can't know the degree to which that is just simply you know, machine processing language as opposed to being purely conscious. And this, the meaning, yeah, there, there's obviously, we can go into deeply into the semantics of what the word meaning means, but I think that meaning in the sense you would generally construe it is something which is uniquely human, where AI and anything which we can envisage which AI will become will not be able to attribute true meaning in the sense of understanding and feeling the purpose behind that. These are things which are purely human at this point and for, and for, for as long as we can imagine. Well, remember people who have seen Blade Runner that the hero, the real hero of the story was Harrison Ford. Uh, he's in the business of hunting down replicants, of distinguishing between machines and humans. Um, if I was Harrison Ford, of course, I'm never going to be Harrison Ford for better or worse, but if I was Harrison Ford 
and I was interviewing you about whether or not you were human, how would you prove that you were human to me as opposed to being a machine? What would you say or do? It's not a question I've uh, thought about in depth before. It's, it's, and I think it's very hard because machines can be very good at essentially. So you might be a machine, Russ. So I, I, I'm not sure. So you can't convince me that I'm not talking to a machine. It's, I would, I suppose, discuss as much as possible the depths of human emotion and the range of culture. But I think that's something which human machines can can replicate. So again, this comes back to this point where I think machines will be able to extremely well uh, imitate humans and what it is they do. I think that we are already past the point of passing the Turing test, as in not being able to discern through a conversation. Yeah, we did a show on Turing with uh, his biographer, a very interesting show. Yeah. The and Turing so, test being for everyone who who doesn't know a test which determines whether or not machines can reproduce language in a convincing way that people can't know whether or not it was produced by machines. And so, and so and if, if we just have conversation through voice or through text, then machines are clearly at the threshold right now of being able to do that. And so I think it's extremely hard. I, I don't necessarily believe that so I you could. might be a machine. Russ, I I, you're I not going to convince me, or I might be one too. What would you ask me to convince yourself that I'm not some sort of machine bot there to um, generate questions for you uh, to, to celebrate your new book? My my first question would be to, to reflect on your childhood and how that has shaped who you are today. I think that's something where I didn't have a childhood. For a machine. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't have, I was one of those people who didn't have a childhood, unfortunately. I'm still <laughs> reliving it. But let's get back to the book in all seriousness, Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success. These, book always see, these books always seem to have five things or three things. What are the five powers briefly, Ross? So, so they are purpose, framing, filtering, attention, and synthesis. So purpose is we need to know why. Why in the first place do you want to have any information at all? You know, there's got to be a reason for it and to be able to understand that helps us discern what is useful and what is not. Framing is being able to build the frameworks that are the foundation of meaning and understanding where we piece together the individual pieces of information into things that are the foundations of our mental models. Filtering has been able to discern what is actually useful to us and valuable to us and what is not useful and you cross the portfolio of our information channels. Attention, and I believe attention, there are many types of attention. It's not just either we're paying attention or not. We, we're different whether we are scanning for information, whether we are sitting to assimilate that, to take that into our understanding, whether we are exploring for new things or whether we're regenerating our attention. And because it's something which we, we do need to do, we can't be always on. And synthesis finally is it's delving beyond that conscious anal analytical mind to the power of our unconscious mind to synthesize, pull together the pieces, to build the understanding that does enable us to make better decisions in an extraordinarily complex world. Is this a book, um, Ross, for uh, ordinary readers, or, or is it really more of a book for, for business leaders? Because it sounds a bit complicated. 
it's it's intended to be as accessible as possible. And I, I tend my you know in my work I tend to deal with more uh, sophisticated organizations, a lot of you know financial and professional. Yeah, some of your clients yeah. include the United Arab Emirates and Coca-Cola. So they're very sophisticated. <laughs> and used for Rupert Murdoch's organization. Well, they, they tend to be good at what they do. And so this is the, the kind of people I tend to deal with. But does that make them smart? I mean, when you're dealing with the, the UAE or Coca-Cola or Murdoch, does that make them more or more or less smarter than average? Well, smarter is not the 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 point the, in this case, it is this, you know, being able to assess information, the vast amount of information, and be able to make sense of that, and I, I think this is a case. This is this is not being um, elitist. This is the idea that we can all do this. We can. I don't know. You're allowed to be yeah. elitist, Russ, on on my show. I'm an elitist, so there's no problem with that. Well, well, I, I guess part of the point is that I have my previous books and all my previous works have been, been about organizations. This book is all about the individual, and I believe that. Everyone, every individual, wherever they are, whether they're in an organization, they're just doing their own thing, or students, whatever it may be, can develop these skills. And I think it's really uh, remiss that through in our educational systems and our society, we do not provide these basic training, basic skill development in this simple you know, necessity of dealing with massive amount of information, be able to, to thrive on it. So those who have succeeded have worked it out for themselves. Sometimes they know what they're doing. Sometimes they're just not conscious of what they're doing. But these are skills for everybody. And there is, in fact, a future of democracy piece in this, and that we all, in a complex world, need to be better at processing information. We need to uh, broaden access to these skills because this is not about, you know, I shouldn't, this shouldn't be only available to the, you know, the larger organizations. This is something where. We all need to develop our skills. That's just the reality. We live in an information environment. So these are skills that we have to develop for everybody to give this, make this accessible. Let's get more concrete, specific. Um, you're on Twitter. You have 126,000 followers. You follow almost 30,000 people. So I assume you're, you're pretty busy on there. Um, and you also have a newsletter, which you're promoting on. Twitter suggesting that if I guess if you subscribe to a newsletter, you can keep ahead of the future, whatever that means. What are you suggesting about the way in which people use networks like Twitter? Should they use them less? Should they get off them? I mean, you need to be more concrete. You're very abstract in these five themes. So maybe drill down a little bit more concretely. How should we use social media? Because many people feel overwhelmed by all this information being thrown at them. But on the other hand, they feel they need to be on it. They need to be on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter to keep up with their friends, their networks, their business, and the world itself. So one of the first things comes back to purpose, as in what it is that you want to achieve. And so that determines to a large degree what it is you want to do. But in terms of the social media channels, Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and TikTok are basically pretty limited value in terms of being good information sources. They have a place, but I think we need to be very discerning in the time that we spent on 
using them as information sources as opposed to ways of keeping in touch with so, so really don't use them as try not to use them in other words basically whereas twitter is one where if it is used well can be extraordinarily useful and this requires using lists and one of the interesting things that i unearthed in my conversation with you know the information masters i interviewed with my book is trying to create lists of as few as 20 people and you try to radically refine those saying this is a topic i want to find the 20 best people not more than that because otherwise it starts to become overload and so this is where you try to be very discerning and have specific lists so you're not following so i don't look at my general stream where i've got many people i'm following but at lists where there are far smaller number of yeah, people. So yeah, so you don't follow, so really you don't really follow 30,000 people. You're just doing that out not, of not in terms of what they not in terms of what they are producing. No. You um, mentioned information masters, Ross. What is an information master? Can you give me some examples of information masters? So some of the most uh, yeah, some of the most obvious are the you know the business leaders. I mean with so, you know, it's, it's trite to say you know, Warren Buffett's and, you know, Elon Musk's and, and so on. But they are people that have access to massive information and use that uh, effectively. But I think most academics are exceptionally good at this. What they do, they have to scan across incredible number of research articles uh, to keep them on top of their fields. They need to be able to pick out, to be able to pull out what is relevant, to be able to reference that in their work. Some of them do it better than others, but uh, it's interesting to see this in uh, academics and how they do that. And in the, I think uh, also authors and journalists, and the journalists are people who distill what is relevant, what is meaningful, and to be able to, of course, bring that into a story. So some of the, the roles I think are of journalists and authors, uh, communicators, uh, researchers, analysts, and the best entrepreneurs, because these are people that have to keep on top of incredible change in their industries, as well as the dynamics of financial markets and uh, funding markets and things like that. Ross, you seem to have a particular interest in, in Google. They're one of your clients. You're an interesting blog piece about whether a, a Google PhD will become as good as a university granted PhD. I'm not sure everyone has your faith in Google. We had a um, we had Margaret uh, we had Margaret Mitchell on the show recently. She was a fairly senior AI researcher at Google who got fired uh, for complicated reasons. Um, and she came on the show to talk about how big tech and I think for her that's mostly Google can be reformed to make it more ethically responsible. I'm less interested in your take on Google. You don't represent them, of course. They just happen to be a client. But what do we need to do uh, in terms of managing information to make big tech more ethical? How can we thrive on overload, not just to keep ourselves afloat, alive in this information tsunami that we live in, for better or worse, but how can we make the world a better place and push companies like Google to behave in a more responsible way too? Yep, absolutely. And I'm not a Google advocate by, by any means. Though 
I suppose the broader point here is that in a world of overload, this is a massive problem, leading to, amongst other things, erosion of democracy as people get uh, miscommunication and disinformation and, and the, you know, lack of ability to feel comfortable in their lives. So there's two issues to address. One is at the systems level, the other at the individual level. And in a way, my book is striving to address the individual level as in you know, helping people develop the skills that are required. At a systems level, there is absolutely regulation that is required, but certainly the big tech companies have a role and a responsibility in being able to provide, in the first instance, whatever supporting information that will help us to filter, particularly what is incorrect information as, as opposed to some that which has some validity. So I think there's a whole array of tools which some of the platforms are beginning to provide in some guises. Uh, other ways to provide more control over certainly our uh, our feeds or social media coming into us so that it is not determined solely by algorithms that we can have greater agency of choice over that. Uh, so there is certainly the role of regulation, but I think that the, that can be minimized if the big tech step up to recognize their power and what it is they can do to be able to assist us. And when there's so much money resources, AI going into trying to mislead us in various guises from advertising through to trying to, to, to put us astray in our voting habits or our social engagement. So this, these are absolutely critical issues. As you say in your newsletter, you're promising to keep people ahead of the future. You are a, a self-styled futurist uh, on your blog, uh, on your website, you have a whole section on what it is to be a futurist um, and you were named as one of the biggest 40 players in Australia's digital age so you're one of the 40 top futurists in Australia which is quite an achievement Russ what responsibility do you think futurists have in particular to um, to address this exponential age which makes so many of us nervous uncomfortable depressed? So many people have different frames around what a futurist is. My definition is someone who helps people to think about the future more usefully than they do. So not predicting, but being a guide to help people think more about the future than they would otherwise, provide some frameworks or some clues or some ways of thinking that can be useful in particular and being able to discern what may be futures that we do want as opposed to those we don't want and be able to identify that, that which can more likely to shift us to the positive futures than the, the negative ones. So this is a sensitization to thinking about future, what is creating that, what are the things which we can do along that, that uh, path. And I think that my, I believe very deeply that it is my role to believe that we can create a better future and to help other people believe that we can. Because I think unless we believe that it is possible to create a better future, we're not going to take the action to be able to do it. It doesn't believe we think it is likely or it is inevitable or, you know, we, we don't need to be glowing optimists to believe that there is a fragment of a chance that we can create a better future and thus that there can be some things which we can identify now to be able to create that. And whether that's on the you know, human humanity or planet level or down to your family or your organization, I think 
you know, it is fundamental and I believe my role is, and I'm working hard to help people believe and understand that yes, we can do things which can help us create a better future than we would have otherwise. So that's, we, we need to take action on a whole variety of levels from small to the macro. And the role of the futurist is to make people see that there are opportunities to do that. Well, I think Ross, you've convinced me you're not a replicant, although I'm not Harrison Ford, so I may not be the best judge. I hope you're not, because um, if, if you are, we're in trouble. Uh, but certainly your new book, um, Thriving on Overload, it's just out, is an important read. I think it's about a really critical subject. Uh, the five powers for success might be the five powers for survival as much as success. So congratulations uh, on the new book. Uh, what else, uh, Ross, are you reading these days? What other books would you recommend to our viewers and listeners? So one, one book which I've uh, just finished, taking some time to read, is uh, the, Beginning, the Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Mm. I know it's got a lot of... Uh, attention and conversations started. Yeah, other uh, people have recommended that. It sounds like a very interesting book. Yeah, it's, it's a, it is a pretty heavy read. It did take a little while to get there. But you, you, some of you, it's a book you do have to pay attention to. And one of the things I say in Thriving on Overload is very old reading speed, from very slow to very fast, depending on how much there is to take in, uh, which is worthwhile. But David Deutsch, does, you have to slow down to, uh, to take it in. But it's it presents again this fundamentally positive frame around what it is we can do. And I suppose this thesis that we, whatever we know today, we can't know what we will know tomorrow. And the extent of human knowledge is unlimited. So, and that brings the beginning of, you know, essentially an unlimited future for us if we seize the opportunity if we make our societies not static, but ones which can be dynamic. Uh, 